1: pacer nation welcome back to another episode here of setting the pace on pacers Talk.net. and you guys know it is our monday podcast so joining me right now is the one and only kent sterling kent what's up
2: alex i'll tell you what i wasn't happy last night but I, uh, a good night's sleep kind of solves a lot of problems so i'm okay today
1: <laughs> yeah so if you didn't miss the pacers next game you didn't miss much the, the the pacers were absolutely atrocious in that game kent you were at the game i'm assuming right
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So tell me a little bit about that game, because I was out doing stuff. I got to catch the end of the second quarter, kind of caught on from there. So I wasn't there to see that woeful first quarter. So give me your take on what was going on.
2: Well, you got Oladipo and Brogdon combining to go six for 27. You know, that's not good. Victor, they're going to have to figure out quickly how to play with Victor. Without Victor last night, I think they win that game. With Victor, they lose that game, and they got to figure out how to kind of turn that thing around and become a better team because he's a part of it, and they've got to do it quickly because these games that you lose, like that game against the Knicks, that's going to come back to bite you in the ass in April, and you're going to be a game out of second or a game out of third or a game out of fourth, and so you're not going to have home court advantage in the first round of the playoffs. they got to figure out, Victor needs to figure out how to be Victor Oladipo, while allowing the Pacers to be the Pacers. They play different styles of basketball. Vic is kind of a ball dominant guy. The Pacers are not a ball dominant team. None of them, other than Vic, they got to figure this thing out.
1: Well, just to kind of give you a little bit of a rebuttal there, didn't it, didn't Nate McMillan tell us this on media day that it was going to be oh, a yeah. process? So, I mean, are we expecting too much right now, or is this just the Knicks are that bad? You shouldn't lose that game regardless.
2: Well, I think it's both. Right. You know, right. I think maybe we're going to be a little bit impatient, and the Pacers shouldn't have lost that game. And without Victor Oladipo, if he's in street clothes, they win that game last night, and he knows that. And what yeah. Nate said last week is this is going to be a process. This is going to take time. But for God's sake, you've got to find a way to beat the Knicks while it's a process, I get it. You know, if you lose to the Mavericks, right, even without Donkic, and I, I don't know at this point whether Luke is going to play or not, you know, th- with that ankle, you, you've got to f- – that's okay. You lose to a really good team, I get it. But if you lose to a, a, a cellar dweller in the Eastern Conference, you've got a big problem. You need to figure that out. They were at full strength last night, and, and they didn't get the job done. They had two guys in double figures. And that's not Pacers basketball when we've seen them play well. I mean, they got, what, six or seven guys averaging double figures. Let's get those guys engaged. Let's move the ball and let's take open shots when we get them instead of handing the ball to Vic and letting him try to break things down. that That's not what this team is.
1: Yeah, no, it's not. And, I mean, if you look at the Knicks' box score and you look at how the Knicks played last night, I mean, they were not very good either. They were horrible. I mean, right. Nolan scored 92 points. They've only won 14 games in the season now. Marcus Morris really just kind of took over the game the last six minutes there, uh, scoring 28 points. He led all teams in scoring. But, I mean, Julius Randle had 16 points, but it was on 5 of 14 shooting, so it's not like it was a high percentage of numbers. Just a really bad game to lose, and I know that fans are probably going to be critical of us because we're kind of being critical of Victor and his fit with the team. But my biggest question mark is, why is McMillan closing games out with Victor on the court in the fourth quarter right now, when these guys are still not sure what you know what they're going to do with each other because the chemistry is not there.
2: You know, and the last time I checked, Victor Oladipo hadn't been canonized, so it's not like we're we're criticizing St. Vic here for God's sake. He's a basketball <laughs> player, and if he's not going to be a force for good. Let's get the guy assimilated in practice, and let's move forward that way while the Pacers continue to, move, to win games rather than putting him in a position and this team in a position where they're going to they're lose a game to a team coming in last night. That was 13 and 36 now 14 and 36 on your home court. You have you're responsible for winning games. Look, don't lose in the regular season in order to accomplish something and put yourself in a position in March and April where you're going to win games. Let's figure this thing out without costing yourself a game. Let's If you want to insert him in a game and get his feet wet and get people used to playing with him, let's do it when the game's not on the line and play him 12 minutes in the second and third quarter instead of putting him on the court. And you know what? I get it. I get that against the Bulls. He hit the three from 28 to tie the game. Good for him. That's wonderful. But let's not forget either that he missed his first six, yeah. for God's sake. So, you know, I think to this point, like with the Bulls and with the Knicks, you think, okay, let's let's diminish the quality of our team in the short term for what we can gain later, thinking that these teams are bad enough that you're going to be able to beat them, but it bit them in the ass last night.
1: Yeah, and no, that's kind of the thing. It's like you can't overlook any NBA team, but, I mean, it wasn't no. entirely
2: Victor's fault
1: because, I mean, Brogdon, 4 of 13. McDermott was 3 of 9. The officiating was very questionable. A yeah. lot of really bad calls, a flagrant foul on Brogdon was atrocious. I have no idea how you can even call that a flagrant that one. That's ridiculous. Uh, McDermott, a couple times where he drove to the basket on the on the dunk attempt, he got hammered by Bobby Portis, the one where he was coming off the pin down for the three, got hit in the arm. So just a lot of bad calls. And, I mean, last night, I mean, even when Sabonis cut the game to three points after he made the free throw on the and one, at first none of the other officials were going to call the end one foul. Scott Foster called it from the other end. So, you know, it's just one of those things Last night the officials had a bad game The Pacers had a bad game The Knicks really had a bad game too But I think my biggest problem, Kent With this whole entire game Down the stretch How Nate McMillan and the Pacers Decided to let Justin Holliday Match up with Morris one-on-one Morris yeah. was much bigger than him And he was the only one doing anything all night Why didn't they not go send another player over To try to force the ball out of his hands I mean, that made zero sense to me
2: yeah and, and I don't get it either. I know that that Holiday is a good offensive player. He brings athleticism that the the pacers might not otherwise have. He's very bouncy, but morris Morris was just what you know kind of in his zone last night he hit that fadeaway uh fifteen footer that was like, okay, how in the world did he do that He's not that that high quality kind of offensive threat where he's going to go Kyrie on you. And, and beat you all by himself, but that's exactly what he did.
1: Yeah, and then the last – after Sabonis cut the game to three points and the Knicks had the ball again, I thought defensively Miles Turner just uh, got beat there on yeah. that screen. His guy, I think it was Mitchell Robinson was in the game at this point. He set a screen to get Morris free at the same time they had Julius Randle cutting across the post with Sabonis on him, and Turner – somehow or some reason decided to fade back with Randall allowing Morris to get an open you know little 12 footer there so I was a little disappointed because if you're Miles Turner and your job is to protect the rim and you see your guy setting a screen for the guy that just hit four shots in a row you would think the Knicks are going to go to the hot hand and I can live with Sabonis going one-on-one with Julius Randall in the post.
2: You know, you're exactly right. And then you look at the rebounding numbers where Randall had 18 rebounds, the next 57, uh, Pacers 34. You know, the Pacers only had 21 assists. To me, that's not Pacers basketball. They're regularly over 25 assists a game. If they're playing their kind of basketball, they tend to distribute the ball well enough that they get in the neighborhood of 25, 30, maybe 32 assists, and they just didn't last night. But rebounding – was a big part of their problem last night and and sometimes that's you know just bad fortune where Mm. the ball caroms in an odd direction and it caroms beyond where you've blocked a guy out so they're kind of blocking you in as the ball caroms far off the rim and that happened a few times last night but you're you're exactly right about the officiating i watched a lot of basketball this weekend officiating I think is at an all-time low. And I don't know whether that's because of replay. I don't know what's causing this problem, but I've never seen officiating be this sketchy.
1: It, it's it's one of those things, Kent, where you feel like replay does have a major effect in it, but even when they go back and, and check the replay, I mean, they, they upgraded Brogdon's foul to a flagrant. I yeah. Mean, Right. What in the world? Like, what are these officials looking at? I mean, Reggie Miller chimed in on Twitter, said it was the weakest, flagrant foul he's ever seen in his life. I mean, I don't, I understand protecting shooters and all that kind of stuff, but to me, it was just horrific last night. And I mean, I didn't, I didn't get a chance to watch IU versus Ohio State very much. I watched the tail end of it, but I didn't miss anything there. But no, you know, it's, uh, it's one of those things where I've just notice where officiating has just been bad. And sometimes it's favor the Pacers. And like last night, it really hurt the Pacers.
2: And that's from Reggie Miller, right? Yeah. Who made a living kicking his foot in and, and getting fouls called on, on defenders when he shot. And last night, that's what happened. In Brogdon. Brogdon just stepped toward the shooter. He didn't put try to put his foot underneath the guy's foot. For right. that to be a flagrant, I, I thought that that was absolutely abysmal. Uh, and, and really indicative of the quality of officiating as it stands now, both in the NBA and in college basketball. I, I just I don't understand how the officiating has eroded to the level it has. But it, it didn't favor the, uh, the Pacers last night. The rebounding numbers didn't favor them. Uh, the assist numbers, not where you'd really like it to be. Um, the Knicks last night outscored the Pacers from the line 17 to 13. So, you know, that's not terribly egregious, 20 fouls on both teams. But still, you know, it's not a matter of evening up the number of fouls. It's a matter of calling fouls as they occur and calling them correctly, calling turnovers correctly. And I just don't think it's getting done at a very high level. For the guys who are supposed to be the best in the world at this, I I don't think they're very good
1: why do you think that is? I mean, do you think it's just lack of talent, or do you think it's because they're being monitored every second they're afraid to mess
2: up? Well, that's part of the deal, where they get graded on absolutely every call. And then what I I think has happened also is because of replay, and this happens in the NFL too, that rules have been written to make it black and white, and the game's not black and white. And so you've got a situation where – You know, the rule has been written about a flagrant foul being called when a guy puts his foot under a shooter because they don't want guys rolling their ankles all over the place. And that's kind of a crappy thing to do if you do it on purpose. Extend your foot underneath where the guy's going to come down after he shoots. I get that. But they put themselves in a box where if this happens, you have to make this call. The gray area has been kind of removed from basketball and football. And, and this is all gray area. I mean, you look at charges, you look at blocks, that's a totally gray area deal. And, and I, I think that the construct of the rule has to change or, or you're going to continue to have these problems. I've, I, I've had this discussion with my son who played college basketball, and he wants to get rid of the charge rule entirely. Yeah,
0: just thinks it's I've bad for
2: basketball. You know and and I think that it is I think that that cleans up a lot of it i I think that what we do, and this is a little bit societal, so I'm getting a little bit deep into the woods here, but we tend to try to legislate we expand rule books instead of contracting them mm-hmm. i I think that games would be better, sports would be better officiated if you had fewer rules and and you concentrated on kind of trimming instead of expanding, I I think it'd be easier to call, and I think the result would be a a more easy-to-watch game. I mean, if you watched the Purdue game on Saturday night, right? Purdue beats Northwestern. Watching that game down the stretch was almost impossible because of the endless replay challenges or times that they just went to the monitor to check stuff. I mean, damn, do we really need the last minute of college basketball games or NBA games to last 15 minutes? Yeah. Is, is this what we want? We want to li- like completely take the air out of the drama of the end of a basketball game every time one's played? I think it's ludicrous.
1: I do too, and I, I don't really know what the perfect solution is. But uh, as we transition a little bit, I want to talk about the All-Star game. I know you mentioned sure. that you wanted to discuss the new format. And yeah. in that new format, it, it seems like you might not see where the referees can take over end-of-the-game situations because in that fourth quarter, they'll be playing to a specific number. But uh, before I get people confused trying to explain all that, I'm going to let you explain the new format because I feel like you will do a better job at it.
2: Well, each quarter is a separate entity in this respect. There, there's going to be money donated to charity based upon who wins each quarter. And then in the for the fourth quarter, they're going to take the score of the team that leads and add 24 points. That'll become the target number. So this is kind of an extension of what we've seen in that in the TBT, right? Over right. over the course of the summer, they play that the basketball tournament, and it's a bunch of teams that that buy their way into the tournament and field teams, and and they go play. And the way it finishes, and I can't. The guy who developed this is from Ball State. I can't remember the guy's name. I love it though, and they add points. To, I, I think with four minutes left, they add a, a specific number of points, and and that is the target number instead of having it be clock based. So I I mean I don't think it makes it more watchable. It, it's just kind of a, it's kind of a okay, let's try this and let's see how it goes. I, I like it with the basketball tournament. I think in the NBA though. I mean, first of all, the game's unwatchable to begin with because it's going to end 191 to 189. <laughs> no defense is going to be played, and none of the players give a damn less. And who wins? Like there's no, there's no carrot at the end of this right. that's going to cause them to compete at a high level and try to win this thing. It, it's a matter of personal pride, and that doesn't seem to generate a whole lot of, uh, a whole lot of competitiveness throughout the game. Maybe for this, you know, this kind of odd finish, maybe it makes the guys play a little bit harder toward the end. I don't know. But it's, uh, I don't know, you know, I I think they're they're applying a solution to a problem that they're unwilling to solve otherwise. For me, like, here's what I would do. I'd take a million bucks Uh and and for every guy in the all-star team, I got a pile of a million dollars. And if you wind up winning the game, you get to put all that cash into a duffel bag and walk out of the arena with your million bucks. I, I know that that's, you know, tip money to some of these guys, but if you got a chance to play for a million bucks, that's a hell of a thing. You got the all the millions kind of under glass, maybe in the bowels of the stadium. You got the, I, I don't think that they want, maybe the image of the NBA that they want isn't, you know like LeBron James loading a million dollars in cash into a duffel bag so he can lead (laughs) with it. But like, if you put serious money at stake, these guys are going to ball a little bit. And I think that's the point.
1: Yeah. I think that'd be interesting (laughs) also with uh, how much they're getting into gambling. I think that'd be cool too. Is that the guys put money on the line saying, Oh, I'll gamble this much that my team wins. I know we don't, uh, go back to the Pete Rose, you can't bet on your own team, but it's the all-star game, so right. have a little fun with it. Maybe do something that incorporates that. But uh, just to clarify, as far as the format goes, I believe that the score will reset each quarter, and that way it will start out 0-0 for the second and third quarters. Then the fourth quarter, all those points that they've scored have been kept. Uh, they've kept track right. of those, and then they will add those all back together to get the, the scores to, uh, I guess you could say, add all together and put it in the fourth quarter so they can add the 24 to it in honor of kobe bryant who passed away so yeah it's just it's just one of those things i i don't know if it's going to make a difference or not kent but i do think that it does add a little bit of intrigue because maybe these guys will play a little bit harder knowing they're playing for charities and they're trying to honor um kobe bryant his daughter maybe they'll be playing for that reason alone which could make it a little bit more interesting
2: You know, it smacks a little bit of the stage stuff that exists in NASCAR, right? Which has made NASCAR very difficult to watch for me because I don't understand it, how the stages work, how the point system works. What I always loved about NASCAR and what I do love about IndyCar is that watching is kind of a mindless thing where you can just sit down, the race starts, and then at the end of 160 laps or 200 laps or 500 laps or whatever – the guy who crosses, you know, the yard of bricks or, or the finish line, that that person wins. OK, yeah. that's simple. I don't need a damn calculator calculator to be able to watch a NASCAR race, or at least I didn't have to. Uh, I didn't need one before. But these point systems like, OK, if you win the first stage, you get this many points. If you went, it's too complex. Yeah. I, I don't need that kind of that kind of complication in in my <laughs> role as an audience member watching one of these races. It's too complicated.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of... Uh, I don't know how you can make all-star games better. I mean, they are what they are. They're ex- exhibition games, you know. The top 12 players, it's more of an oh, honor yeah. than it is really anything uh, worth watching as far as a game goes. But uh, uh, apparently, Nate Duncan on Twitter thinks that Sabonis is the worst all-star selected in a very long time and people are bringing yeah. up different names from 2015 all-star game. And he said, um, well he said in recent years, uh, he's one of the worst ones he can remember. And then somebody said, what about Jeff Teague 2015? And he said, five years is a long time. So this guy has no sense of time either as well as what good <laughs> basketball is. So
2: can you please like, when you saw that idiotic tweet from Nate Duncan, what were your thoughts? My thought was this, the point of basketball is to win games. The Pacers have won, what have they won? 31 games, 31. right? And that's a lot. And, and so they're in the mix to be the number two team in the East. They deserve to have an all-star. Who has played better than Domas Sabonis for the Indiana Pacers? Nobody. Who's more responsible for the Pacers being successful game in and game out? Who shows up night after night? Like you never look at Domas Sabonis and say, "Okay, he's not giving effort." You never see that. Right. The guy's got a good mid-range game. He scores on the block. His footwork, his quick Quinn Buckner tells us endlessly, <laughs> is fantastic. You know, he's a great competitor. He goes and gets loose balls. He rebounds tremendously. He's averaging thirteen a game. The guy's been terrific. I if if you need analytics. To be able to point to Domas Sabonis and say this guy's an all-star, then uh, the hell with analytics—they don't mean anything to me. I, I think that clearly, obviously, Sabonis is one of the 12 best players in the Eastern Conference. And anybody who looks at numbers or data to suggest it's not true needs to relook at the data and develop some kind of a metric system where you you correctly assess whether a guy can play or a guy can't. I, I don't understand. I God bless Duncan. You know, he's a guy who values – he's kind of like Keith Law a little bit, although Keith Law to baseball is, is far beyond what Duncan is to basketball. But, like, if analytics are a tool, if, if analytics are how you approach the game, then you've got a problem is we're learning in Cleveland where they're all analytics-driven in in the Browns, and that hadn't done him any damn good at all and right. that's because it doesn't work in a vacuum you've got to apply it as a tool not utilize it as your kind of your methodology in competing
1: yeah I, I guess the the knock on sabonis if you're an analytics person is he doesn't shoot threes well he doesn't shoot them at a high rate and his percentages have really dropped off this year because he's not really taking very many but when he does they don't always seem to go in and on the defensive end, he's not the greatest shot blocker. However, he has done a much better job of staying in front of his man, and he doesn't have to be a rim protector to be a good defender, but he does a solid job out there, and I feel like you can tell when Goga is out there compared to Sabonis with that second unit, the defense is much worse. Now, Goga's a better shot blocker, but as far as rebounding goes and and staying with big men that are a little bit more established, you know, you want a guy like Sabonis out there. And we saw that against the Bulls. Like, I know that Goga's your guy, Kent, and uh, we've talked about it a lot. But (laughs) I was was looking at the plus-minuses. I know that I'm not supposed to look at those stats because they're dumb and they're not telling. But everybody in that Bulls game uh, for the Pacers was a a plus stat except Goga. And Sabonis was a plus-26 and Goga was a minus-7. So a pretty big difference there when they were on and off – when one was on and one was off the court. So, you know, I just – I just think that Nate Duncan probably doesn't value the right things as far as what Sabonis brings to the table. No, he's not like Miles Turner. He doesn't shoot threes and he doesn't block shots, but everything else he does is really great. He's a fantastic pick-and-roll player, uh, one of the best screeners in the NBA. I mean, the amount of looks these guys are getting because of Sabonis' screens, the, the beating that he puts on opposing defenders. I mean, Nate McMillan said the coaches. Said it was a no-brainer. Like if, if I if I'm a if I'm a player like Sabonis, I would much rather hear criticism and praise from a coach than a guy that is covering the NBA for analytic reasons.
2: Absolutely, it's not all about numbers. You win games for a variety of reasons, and many aren't captured on a box score. And Sabonis does all of those things really well. And and you know, like I said before, he does it night after night after night. He does not take a night off. His effort in games is relentless. He, he never stops. I think he's a quality teammate guys on the team like him. I think he is a, a net positive in terms of culture, certainly and and be, I, I think that that counts for something. if if somebody from you know if somebody from LA who, who plugs numbers into, into an equation and comes out with what he believes to be the 12 best guys in the east and the 12 best guys in the West, you know what? I, I think you missed the point of basketball. Basketball. Can be the numbers involved with basketball can be an effective tool, but Mm -hmm. they're not the game, and and that that's not the way it works. And similar to base, I mean, you can break it down analytically like Billy Bean did with Moneyball. You, You can do that, but and runs are the most important thing in baseball, but it's other stuff. You know, there are other things at work, and there are human beings playing, and the human beings, uh, as as members of a team, bring different attributes to a team, and many of them can't be quantified.
1: Yeah, and that's kind of the thing. It's like we look at a guy like Miles Turner who analytically is one of the better centers in the NBA for what he can do as far as shooting threes and blocking shots and his on-ball defense, but – we know that his, you know, he's not as good of a screener as Sabonis, and offensively, he's not as good of a passer. Uh, he doesn't have the same post game, and there's a reason why I think that you're seeing the Pacers have more success offensively running it through Sabonis than Turner last year. And that's not a knock on Turner. I just think overall, offensively, Sabonis is a much superior player than Miles Turner. But on the defensive end, you could say the same thing for Turner when talking about who is more superior on defense. Uh, Turner is more superior than Sabonis is on
2: defense. It depends on the matchup, right? I mean, right. if you're going up against like Drummond, Drummond is going to own Miles Turner until Miles puts on yeah. another 40 pounds. Uh, Sabonis has been has been adequate as a defender in, in most matchups, but it's always going to be a game of matchups. That's true, too. And,
1: you know, i I've been seeing a lot of stuff on Twitter recently about trade rumors and this and that and whatever not, but... We looked at Sunday night's game last week against the Blazers. Pacers got beat by ten points, and everyone's saying, "Oh, this is what happens when you don't have Miles Turner." Well, they said the same thing Wednesday when the Pacers were playing the Bulls. Well, they win this game in regulation if if they have Miles Turner out there. Well, I don't know what they were saying last night with Miles Turner back on the court because I just feel like sometimes these fans are overvaluing Turner. Where yeah. I'm not saying that we need to underappreciate him because there are some fans that are doing the opposite and saying he's worth nothing but I want to say this like Miles Turner's defense is very important to the Pacers success but it's not going to win or lose them games on a night-to-night basis yes they need rim protection but Sabonis does fit better as the center and not the power forward they make it work they stagger their minutes they're doing everything they can to make this duo work and they do really complement one another with what their skill sets bring but there is a reason that Sabonis is an all-star this year compared to a Miles Turner, because when Turner was given the same load offensively that Sabonis was with the starters, he didn't produce as much. So it's just one of those things where I am trying to, you know, criticize and critique these players without being uh, a homer or one-sided for Sabonis versus Turner and the uh, vice versa. But there's a lot of trade rumors going around now, Kent, talking about Miles Turner being in trade rumors. I personally don't think the Pacers are shopping him, but I think teams are calling and seeing the interest uh, and seeing the value, uh, what his value is worth. Because I do believe that teams could use a guy like Turner, and it, it makes sense to call and ask about him.
2: I would be stunned if Kevin Pritchard did anything. I think right. he's going to stand pat. I, I don't think, given, and we've seen this in the past, right? With, with the Pacers, as they're pretty good, and they make a deal toward the the deadline. We remember what happened when they. Uh, when they dealt Danny Granger and and how that kind of Evan Turner, uh, that kind of Lavoie Allen kind of messed with a mojo with that team. It didn't work out when they signed uh, Andrew Bynum. That really didn't work out for a variety of reasons. And and so when you when you mess with what you've got, especially if it's working, you know, what are you going to get? And And this is why being a general manager, you know, there's art and there's math. And and I think not making a deal is about the art of being a general manager, and and not necessarily about the math. I don't think that the the pay. I mean Miles Turner for the next three years, right? Yeah. He's under contract at eighteen million piece, and that is a very manageable number for a guy like Miles Turner. I, I think that they can probably get more out of him in, in a trade with less risk. If they go into next year with Miles Turner and give Batadza another year to develop and and another year to kind of close the gap between what Turner is and what Batadza is going to become. And, And then all of a sudden, maybe a deal makes a little bit of sense. But I don't think it like you've just you've added another ingredient into the stew with Victor Oladipo and you're still stirring it around to see how that tastes. I don't yeah. think all of a sudden you need to subtract an, ingre- an ingredient and throw in another ingredient like a, an Aaron Gordon type guy, and then all of a sudden you've got a wholly different thing. It, when you're going good, keep going good. Yeah. Don't get in the way of going good. You know that. And, and Kevin Pritchard, I I am certain is way smart enough to get that. Yeah,
1: I mean if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? So right um, with Turner though, I mean I'm just curious your thoughts because. As far as a GM evaluating your talent and, and trying to make sure if you do pull the trigger, like if they pull the trigger on a Turner trade, whether it's this year, next year, or two years down the road, they have to make sure that they get a good player in return or something of value that makes sense for the fit of this team because Turner is a young player that's got a lot of, you know, uh, what am I trying to say, or potential, and he's got yeah. a lot of... Um, what people want when they're looking for a big man to add to their roster, especially for it. I mean, the Pacers are a very unique team in running their offensive sets through their center. A lot of teams don't do that. You see the team like the Nuggets do that because they've got uh, a guy like Nikola Jokic, but you're not seeing the Lakers, the Clippers, the Celtics, the, the bucks They're not running their offense through their center, so it's a it's a totally different style of play. Now, if you're going to trade a guy like Turner Kent what are you looking for in return, and what where do you put his value at? Like, if you're trying to evaluate your player in Miles Turner, what are you wanting in return for him?
2: I think you ought to be able to get uh, what you would project to be a lottery pick, that like outside that normally protected area, okay. and you ought to be able to get a serviceable rotation player. I think you ought to be able to get both of those things, and and I think you should demand both of those things. You're not going to get two potential all stars like the Pacers got for Paul George. I, I don't think that that's going to happen. I think that that trade has turned out to be an absolutely wonderful deal right. for Pritchard and, and the Pacers. Good riddance to Paul and and lovely getting those two guys back. Oladipo and Sabonis have been terrific, both all-stars. Um, but I, So I don't think his value is that high. I, I do think that he has terrific value. I, I don't know whether you want to, like until and if Batadza starts to push Turner for minutes a- at that point, I-, I think you've got kind of uh, a-, a nice, uh, you've got a richness in your roster that you can utilize in order and depth in order to kind of build future standing a- as far as drafts and continue to kind of churn a little bit and bring talented guys in. But if you can't get a, a lottery pick or what you project to be one in exchange for Turner, I don't make the deal. I don't make the deal straight up for human beings uh, unless you can get a special human being. I'd want yeah. to have the the opportunity to get somebody who you would, you would maybe project to be an all-star depending on the draft.
1: Okay, so hypothetically, I'm not saying I would do this trade, but I'm curious your thoughts because some people said they would do it. Uh, there's two power forwards that – have recently men- have been mentioned in trade rumors one is Aaron Gordon who you brought up earlier and another one is John Collins if e- if either of those two guys really became available would you do a turner swap to get one of those two guys on this team
2: not at the deadline but depending on their contracts cuz i don't know their contracts off the top of my head yeah. it, maybe in the off season you you take a look at that i mean especially with Aaron Gordon i mean Aaron Gordon is potentially terrific um, but that is I. I wouldn't do it mid-season. I this team, you know, don't argue with winning, right? Yeah. I mean, if you're at a if you're at a craps table and the dice are really hot, don't pick up your chips and go to another table, for goodness sake. Mm-hmm. You know, ride the wave, baby. And and I think that that's what Pritchard's going to do.
1: Yeah, and I, and I think like John Collins, I get kind of worried about him because he's already got suspended twenty-five games. Yeah, I'm not necessarily sure that he fits what the Pacers want culture-wise, and that could have been one of the reasons they did draft T.J. Leaf over him in the draft, because there were some concerns about his character, and the Pacers don't want a knucklehead in here. Let's just be honest. Um, Aaron Gordon is an interesting player because Orlando, I don't know what it is about Orlando. I feel like they should be better than what they are for the players that they have. I don't know if it's the coaching staff or just how everything runs in that system and that franchise, but it just seems like... They're not using Aaron Gordon correctly. I feel like he's got a lot of potential as a player. I think he would make perfect sense on this Pacers team, whether he's starting at the 4 or the 3 and you move Warren to the bench or you trade Warren. Uh, I know a lot of fans would be heartbroken to see a T.J. Warren deal, but I think that with the athleticism you see from Aaron Gordon and his defensive capabilities, I think that he is exactly what this team is missing Especially when you consider he's, I think he's a 32% three point shooter for his career, so not great, but something, you know, something that he could develop. And the Pacers don't necessarily have to shoot a ton of threes. It's not their style of play, but they do demand defense, and he's already a really good defender. We saw it last night. The Pacers' best wing defender right now is Justin Holliday. I don't know if that's going to get you um, enough uh, to get past a team like Boston or a team like. Philadelphia in the playoffs if you're really struggling to find guys that can defend on the perimeter at a high level
2: you know I I agree with that I I think defensively that's where they they have kind of a glaring weakness I think Brogdon Oladipo Turner and Sabonis are are terrific defenders or or in Sabonis's case a good defender and and Warren I think has been better than advertised from a defensive perspective but but not, you know, certainly not an elite level guy. You brought up an interesting name. It wouldn't surprise me if they were going to make a move, and it, I think that they could move TJ Leaf and maybe get a couple of seconds, something like that, <laughs> uh, because clearly he's not a I don't part. Know. <laughs> of, he he's not a part of what they want to do. Yeah. You know, he he they have no future plans for TJ Leaf being a rotational basketball player. So if they've got a GM. Who's nutty enough to see him as kind of this eighteen point a game guy? But who has seen you know, him at that? I don't. Come on, Ken. He, he can score eighteen. I, I he's a good offensive basketball player. Ah. He can't defend you, but he's a good offensive That's terrible basketball if he can't player. Can't
1: defend me. I can't even run down the court anymore. I'm so fat. But
2: <laughs> if he played, <laughs> if he played thirty two minutes for a bad team, he would score eighteen a game.
1: Yeah. And give up how much? 45. Well,
2: he'd give up a gob. But, yeah. you know, some general managers are dopey enough to think, well, you know, hey, we were dopey enough to take him with a first round pick, and Kevin Pritchard's a pretty smart guy. So well, maybe you know, we can maybe sucker the Suns into another there.
1: deal. They like white big men,
2: apparently. Aaron Baines, yeah, there you go. Players.
1: Uh, <laughs> you know, Aaron Baines, Frank Kaminsky, Dario Sarich. I mean, hey, I'm not trying to be racist, but I'm just saying that's kind of a what they like going down there in Phoenix. But uh, a trade that I actually thought might make sense for the Pacers, I know he's not a great defender, but I think that he would help, and he has a little bit of, I wouldn't say an edge, but I guess you could say a little bit of an edge, is Jay Crowder. Uh, yeah. On a team like Memphis, you know, I know they're in playoff contention, but the way that Damian Lillard's been balling right now with the Blazers and the Spurs, I think that they'll eventually surplant Memphis for that eighth seed. Now, I know that Jay Crowder is a very important piece to the Grizzlies, but... How important he is for the future, I don't know. But if you can maybe deal uh, an Edmund Sumner and a T.J. Lee for Jay Crowder just to give the Pacers some more depth at that wing position, he's he's a I forget what his career uh, percentage is from three-point line, but I know he's not shooting very well this year. I think he's at like 29%, so not great this year, but had shot around 34, 35 the previous years uh, to that. I think adding a guy like that and not giving up much – would make sense if you're really wanting to make a serious run in this year's Eastern Conference because you have to remember, next year Kevin Durant's coming back, and that's going to make the East a lot more difficult.
2: Yeah, well, you know, you're right, and we'll see about that. I, I think that any team with Kyrie Irving, despite the fact that he is absolutely superb offensively, you you generally see, like, he's, he you get Irving, you get problems.
1: Yeah, that's and, true.
2: You know, so I don't know. And, you know, Durant is not without his, his detractors from a, an attitudinal standpoint, too. And so, but Crowder, like, if you could deal, if you could, uh, Edmund Sumner is never going to be a rotational guy here. TJ Leaf's never going to be a rotational guy here. If you can take two guys who are basically cast offs or will be cast offs eventually and go get a guy that you can kind of plug and play. Then you know I think you you go ahead and do that. But again, look this this is a group that's kind of figured it out, and they've got problems enough. I think with yeah. Oladipo coming back, so I I don't think that even if the deal on paper makes sense, I'd be really surprised if Kevin pulled the trigger and inserted another like another. Another wild card in the deck. I, I don't think that Kevin Pritchard needs to add one at this point. Uh, I don't think he wants to add one, so I, I don't think he's going to pull the trigger on another deal. or yeah, Any I, deal?
1: Yeah. I, I honestly don't see them making any major move. I just, you know, I like I mentioned before, I know your obsession with Goga and his potential, <laughs> but <laughs> I am I am worried if if Turner or Sabonis gets into foul trouble or gets hurt, I just don't think I'm ready to trust Goga. In the playoffs this year, I understand that the experience will be good for him, maybe help him develop, but he really needs an offseason of gaining muscle, getting a little bit you know, better acclimated with the organization, the NBA, and just and just having that offseason of NBA basketball to try to really get himself ready for his sophomore season because, I mean, sometimes big men just take a little bit longer to develop. So one of my things here, Ken, is I am intrigued to see if the Pacers maybe go out and look to find a backup, a third-string center. I'm not sure who they would be interested in or who is even available. I haven't really looked at names. But I I talked with Fachi about this on Wednesday. I mentioned going out maybe signing a guy like Joe Kim-Noah just to be a third-string oh. center. You know, you cut a guy like T.J. Leaf who's not going to be in the rotation anytime soon, kind of like how E.K. Aniboga was last year. He was just on the team, didn't really do anything. So – Fauci was like I don't want him at all blah, blah 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 but I just think a guy that's going to bring toughness a guy that was pretty good last year with Memphis he's been around the league enough I think you can use him in sparing minutes as a third string center
2: well I I'd say this too I mean the the Pacers are pretty well aware that barring some kind of catastrophe in Milwaukee everybody in the east is playing for number two and none of these teams is going to go to the NBA finals it either as as they are structured today, or as they could be structured if they made a trade. Uh, so it, you know it depends on their expectations and whether they're willing to put chips into the middle of the table. I understand that Noah isn't going to cost you anything, but the money you have to pay him to come onto the roster and and that roster spot. So it's not going to cost you anything in a trade, and there are going to be no like future considerations. But still, at the same time, you're, you're adding another ingredient to this stew. And, and that ingredient, it, it may not it may not make your stew better. And, and we've kind of seen that with Vic, right? Yeah. You know, it's taken time, or it will take time, for them to get this thing right with him. They are not nearly as right with him as they were without him. I, I don't think Kevin wants to take a chance on, on doing that yet again.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's definitely a high risk thing and a low reward. It's not it's not a high right. risk, high reward either. So it's one of those things I, I don't expect the Pacers to make any moves. They'll probably be very quiet but sometimes I feel like when you don't expect a move, that's when a move happens. Because last year we kept hearing all the rumblings about Aaron Holiday from Mike Conley and all those different types of trades that were out there. The Pacers also had so many more expiring contracts last year compared to this year, where they've pretty much you know created their nucleus. And I think there's a way you know that they can make a trade uh, without giving up some of their core. Then maybe they look at it. But at the end of the day, I think this team just needs to get their chemistry intact. Oladipo needs to figure out his role on this team and how he's going to be acclimated. I almost wish he was with the starters. That way he wasn 't affecting the way the bench yeah. played, I feel like the starters are good enough to figure things out with him instead of trying to play him partially with the bench, partially with the starters there's not a good flow there to me, and it ve- it feels very much like the beginning of the season when we had all these new faces mcmillan 's trying to figure out the rotation who he wants to play, who he doesn 't want to play, and then thankfully, with some injuries <laughs> you don 't like to think you know injuries for happening, but it made him play a smaller condensed rotation. And the team found something when he did that. And I think that that's what's going to have to take place here. I would almost just start Oladipo. We have just found out that T.J. Warren will not be available for tomorrow's game with a concussion. He has ruled out for tomorrow versus the Mavericks. So, you know, I would be interested in maybe starting Victor Oladipo at shooting guard, slide lamb to the three, and still play him on his 20-24 minute restriction, but let him get with the starters there and then maybe play Aaron Holiday off the bench with that second unit and Sabonis. I just think that the Pacers have to do a better job figuring out this chemistry instead of making trades.
2: Yeah, and and you bring up a good point with McMillan, and we really haven't discussed what Nate thinks about all of this. We keep talking about, or I do, about Pritchard and how he evaluates the roster. I'll tell you this about Nate McMillan. He's a really easy guy to read. You can tell when he's happy, and you can tell when he's unhappy. He is happy when drama is at a minimum, and when yeah. you've got drama or the potential for drama, he is nowhere near as happy. Trades bring drama. Vic has brought drama. He doesn't want to stack drama on top of drama, I promise you. Yeah,
1: we saw enough drama last year with Tyreek Evans. I mean, I don't know how many times McMillan said, respect the game of basketball <laughs> in a press yeah, right, conference right. You <laughs> know, <laughs> after a practice. Uh, it was pretty much just shots constantly at Tyreek Evans for not respecting the organization of what they wanted but you know ken i think we've we've talked quite a bit here so just your final thoughts on what you've seen so far from this pacers team with vic returning and your expectations uh, heading into the next couple of weeks before we hit the all-star break
2: well vic has got to start shooting the ball effectively or stop shooting the ball you know yeah. i mean you cannot go two of 14 again and again he went one one of six shooting threes against the bulls he was two of 14 overall last night and, and you can't shoot it like that and and put your team in a position to win. So he's got to figure it out, you know. And, and he's got to not be a detriment to this team moving forward.
1: Yeah, no, and I agree with you, Kent. I think that the Pacers have a tough schedule coming up. They've got the Mavericks uh, tonight on Monday night. Then they've got uh, home and home with Toronto Wednesday, Friday. And then I believe they play the Pelicans on Saturday before we talk again. So yep. they're going to have their hands full with some teams that can really you know bring some problems especially with some dynamic guards and Kyle Lowry and Van Vliet uh with with um Toronto so you know this is just a a tough stop, tough spot for the Pacers but they're just going to have to get through it and hopefully by all Star break, Victor is feeling better about himself uh ready to go once they return and hopefully this chemistry thing can figure itself out and hopefully as well being home for most of these games, getting some practice time. So we we know Victor is not playing back to back. So I will be very intrigued to see if McMillan yeah. uses him on the road against Toronto or if he ends up playing him at home against the Pelicans. I'm not sure what your thoughts are. I would assume probably the home game versus the Pelicans. But uh it's one of those things. It's just you gotta take time and figure it out. But anyway, Kent, we have probably gone a little bit longer than we expected, but it's been fun, and we've got a lot to keep our eyes on because some other teams in the East couldn't make trades, and how does that affect them? We'll see that going forward because that could also help the Pacers if teams make some moves and uh hurts their chemistry.
2: It's always fun to watch bad GMs make terrible deals, and that <laughs> happens in the East more often than not.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. So you guys can follow Kent on Twitter at KentSterling. And make sure you guys get up every morning to see Breakfast with Kent, which goes a live stream on Twitter and Facebook.
2: Correct? Absolutely, we did. It's a show so nice we do it twice.
1: <laughs> well, there you guys go. Uh, you can follow me at Alex Golden NBA And until next time, we will talk to you all next week. Have a good one. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns—legends whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history.